This is the word of God. This is typically a passage that gets kind of skipped over when uh, people look at Ephesians because it's a difficult passage, but I think it's very relevant for us. So let's give attention to God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the power of his gospel. To me, though I am the very least of of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. I ask, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, we need help to understand uh, what you're saying, what the Spirit is saying to the church. Lord, we have our own strategies of resistance so that the word wouldn't really penetrate down deep. And we ask that, Lord, you would break down all those resistances, that you'd open wide our hearts And that, Lord, we would open our mouths wide, that you would fill it. And we pray that we would taste and see that you are good. We pray that you would speak now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to try and give some some application, you know, just to get our attention as to what Paul is dealing with is he's, he's talking about that he's a minister to the Gentiles, we, we need to remember, Paul is a Jew from Saul of Tarsus. I mean, he is a Jew through and through, and yet he's a preacher now to the Gentiles, and now he's in prison because of it, and now he's writing to a church that is divided and struggling with. We got all are, are created equal, but as George Orwell would say, some are a little more equal than others. And we got a majority culture and we got a a non-majority culture. And the majority culture was the Jews and they didn't think so swell of the Gentiles. And Paul is gone to the Gentiles and given his life for them and now he's in prison, okay? So that's a little bit of where we're going. Now you start to connect the dots to our culture and you say, well, where where has that been a struggle for us uh, in America? Well... Mark Knoll, who's a great historian, he was at Wheaton College, Um, he may still be teaching there. He wrote a book called The Civil War is a Theological Crisis. And he says this at the very beginning of his book, page one. In the uncertain days of late 1860 and early 1861, the pulpits of the United States were transformed into instruments of political theology. 
Abraham Lincoln, the president-elect, continued to insist that he would follow through on the platform of the Republican Party to prohibit forever the spread of slavery into new United States territory. On December 20th, delegates to a special convention in Columbia, South Carolina, voted to succeed, secede from the Union. The other states of the Deep South seemed sure to follow, and those of the Upper South and Border South likely to do so. In such dire circumstances, Americans look to their preachers for instruction from God. Jump ahead, page two. The Bible, as a host of ministers affirm, was clear as a bell about slavery. The Bible, for example, was clear to Henry Ward Beecher, the North's most renowned preacher when he addressed his Plymouth Congregational Church in Brooklyn, New York on January 4th, 1861, a day of national fasting called to have the people pray for the country's healing. In Beecher's view, the evil for which the United States as a nation most desperately needed to repent, the most alarming and most fertile cause of national sin was slavery. About this great evil, the Bible could not speak with less ambiguity. Where the Bible has been in the household and read without hindrance by parents and children together, there you have had an indomitable, uh, I don't even know this word, yamanry, a state that has, a state that would not have a tyrant on the throne, a government that would not have a slave or serf in the field. So that's the Northern perspective. But of course, the Bible spoke very differently to others who also rose to preach in that fateful moment. Six weeks earlier at a day of fasting called by the state of South Carolina, the South's most respected minister, James Henley Thornwell, took up before his Presbyterian congregation in Columbia. The very same theme of our national sins that Beecher would address before the congregation of Slip Brooklyn. To Thornwell, slavery was the good and merciful way of organizing labor which providence has given us. About the propriety of this system in the eyes of God, Thornwell was so confident that like Beecher, he did not engage in any actual biblical exegesis. Rather, he simply asserted that the relationship between, betwixt the slave and his master is not inconsistent with the word of God we have long since settled We cherish the institution, not from avarice, but from principle. And so you have an incredible divide between the North and the South in their biblical explanation of slavery. Fast forward now, 155 years, and we've had a lot of shootings, and a lot of these have now been recorded and put online. And on March 12th, 2015, we have two very different posts. Franklin Graham from the South. He writes on March 12, 2015, listen up, blacks, whites, Latinos, and everybody else. Most police shootings can be avoided. It comes down to respect for authority and obedience. If a police officer tells you to stop, you stop. If a police officer tells you to put your hands in your air, you put your hands in the air. If a police officer tells you to lay face first with your hands behind your back, you lay down face first with your hands behind your back. It's as simple as that. Even if you think this police officer is wrong, you obey, all capital letters. Parents, teach your children to respect and obey those in authority. Mr. President, this is a message our nation needs to hear, and they need to hear it from you. Some of the unnecessary shootings we have seen recently might have been avoided. The Bible says to submit to your leaders and those in authority because they keep watch over, over you as those who must give an account. 
In a reply to that, Jim Wallace, raised in Detroit, Michigan, teacher at Georgetown University, says this. Dear Franklin, the real issue here goes much deeper than obedience to the police or lack thereof. We all need and should obey good police officers whose important vision, mission is to serve and protect. But that must be done equally and without bias. Most African-American men in particular could tell you their own personal stories of mistreatment by white police officers, which had nothing to do with them not obeying them. Many black women and other people of color could tell you stories too. You should be listening to them. The reality is that there are two policing and legal systems in America, one for black and brown people and one for white people, and that is now well documented, showing it is most stark for black men and especially young black men. Please read the Department of Justice report clearly showing strong racial bias in the Ferguson Police Department. Then read the Presidential Policing Commission report with six police officers on the task force, which shows this is a national problem. Why do you speak only about the Bible's command to submit to authority and not the many scriptures which challenge the sin of racism? Remember, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. Also, the Bible does not say that the law is always right. Jesus challenged the laws of his day when they were unjustly applied and interpreted, the Apostle Paul wrote epistles from prison. The accomplishment of the civil rights movement were only possible because many brave Americans, including many Christians, nonviolently disobeyed unjust laws and the authorities who sought to enforce them. It's time to listen and learn from Americans of color, including our black brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to why all black parents have to have the talk about white people with their sons and daughters. Your Facebook post makes you seem at best oblivious to the racial inequality in the country's policing and criminal justice system, which is also deeply embedded in our American society. At worst, your post reflects your own racial biases, unconscious or conscious. It makes me sad to reach such things coming from such a leader in your position. So until you're equally willing to listen up, Please, make, please stop making such embarrassing and divisive statements. So you have a completely different take on how we're interpreting the news 155 years later. But we still have an issue. Now, recently, you know, you guys know that in some of these past messages with Steve Hudson was on his jog after the shooting in Charleston and he saw the Black Lives Matter sign and went into the church there that was all black, the Emory Grove Church. And they were scared because he was the only white guy and they were all white women. And Steve crossed the line because he was willing to stand with his brothers and sisters because of what he had seen. And I've started to get to know the pastor over there and I've struggled with why doesn't he really understand me and my attempts to try to reach him. And he's suspicious of all this uh, repentance and reconciliation and wonders why white people with power aren't doing more. And I couldn't really get it until I was biking my day off with one of the other pastors in the community. And he said, well, you know his story, don't you? And I said, no. He said, well, in 2006, we should have a picture. That's his church. And that was in the paper. That's in Boyd's, Maryland. That's a black swastika that white supremacists put on his church. 
And his, his frustration is, where was the white church to stand with him? That's not his church, that's our church. If we really believe that, then how come we didn't do anything? I didn't do anything. I'd read that, and I didn't call. I didn't email. I didn't go there. You see, if we really care, then we're there. And we identify and suffer with the minority because we're one in Christ. I didn't do that. And so now I know why he's a bit suspicious. Paul stepped over the line. And I want you to see how he lived his life, how radically he lived it, and what this means for us. So we're going to kind of work backwards through this text. We're going to look at four M's if we have time. The manifold wisdom of God, the mission of the apostle, the mistreatment of the, of the apostle, and the meekness of the apostle. But first, the manifold wisdom of God in verse 10. Paul is telling us, here's the purpose of the church. That the manifold, witness of, manifold wisdom of God would be made known in the heavenly realms. He says here that the church, that, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's always been a bizarre verse for me. That our churches need to be a little more angel friendly and a little more heavenly so that the people in the heavenly realms, whatever these different creatures are that we can't see, we're the ones that are on display, they're the audience, and God's the director of the play. And so this word manifold is nowhere else in the New Testament. It's this word that means multicolored, and it's the same root word from Joseph's coat of many colors, but before it is the word polis in Greek, which means many, where we get the word city. So it means multi, multicolored wisdom of God, that it would be declared with all the people groups, the, the manifold wisdom of God would be declared in the reconciliation that's going to happen in the church. And so think about this, church, this quote here. I was struck by, by this reading this this week. He says that this is Peter O'Brien. He's got the best commentary on Ephesians. Um, he says, the church appears as God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future. The uniting of Jews and Gentiles in Christ was God's masterpiece of reconciliation and gave promise of a time when not Jews and Gentiles only, but all the mutually hostile elements in creation would be united in that same Christ. The church is not only the pattern, but also the means God is using to show his purposes are moving triumphantly to their climax. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. And it's not just true for the universal church, this is true for the local church. Warren Wearsby, in his little commentary on Ephesians, I like this quote, he says, the universal church never sent out a missionary, never built a hospital, observed the Lord's Supper, or helped a needy family. It's the local church that receives the greater emphasis in the New Testament. So we often read these passages, oh yeah, let's be reconciled, oh yeah, that's great, we're going to be great in heaven someday. It's the local church that he's talking about. I mean, keep in mind, Paul started in the synagogue in Ephesus. He was there for three months, and they kicked him out. 
And so he goes to, to the hall of Tyrannus, which we'll get to. And now the Gentiles are starting to grow and, and starting to come to Christ. And this would become, start to become a problem. And so Paul is compelled. He is so compelled to see the unity between Jews and Gentiles that he puts off his mission going to Rome. He wants to get to the capital of the Roman world and preach the gospel where it's never been preached. But he, he's so burdened that he's, got a, he's been collecting this love offering because he's, he's working on unity between Jews and Gentiles. So consider Paul's mission, verses two to nine. Paul was first of all a Jew, yet he was a man of three worlds. He was Jewish, Greek, and Roman. His education was in the strictest Jewish tradition. He studied under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem, yet Paul spoke Greek fluently and was familiar with Greek thought and literature, quoted from Greek, um, Literature in Acts 17, we see that in other places. This meant he could express the, the teachings and the doctrines of Christ and the gospel and these Old Testament concepts that would be foreign to Gentiles. He could do it in a way that Gentiles could get it. But last but not least, Paul was born a Roman citizen, which gave him great advancement in society, protection in his travel, and it even saved him a few times for some massive beatings and ultimately allowed him to get to Rome. He finally gets to get to Rome. And we'll get to the irony of that there later. Paul's a Jew, yet God called him, and he keeps talking about the grace being given to him, and the grace being this power and this energy to go to the Gentiles. And so Paul's gospel and this mission, his gospel isn't new, it isn't innovative, it's the mystery unfolding. In the Old Testament, it looked a lot more like a caterpillar than butterfly, but it's all one unfolding gospel. And in Genesis 12, we're told that, that God preached the gospel to Abraham in advance, that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul quotes that in, in Galatians 3.8 and says, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So you say, well, how is it a mystery if it's in the Old Testament? Well, it was a, it was a mystery in that there was a lot of fog that needed to be cleared out. Meaning, when Peter was commissioned with the gospel, he kept that gospel nice and tidy for himself to preach to the Jews. And God comes to him in a vision in Acts chapter 10. And we're told in Acts chapter 10 that Peter has this vision. He sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Food of Gentiles? And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And so this was repeated to Peter three times because it was still some mystery going on. And then, he's, then right then the messengers show up. They take him to Cornelius. He preaches the gospel to, to Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on them and they get saved. And lo and behold, Peter's blown away. You see... The mystery is God's purpose is now, is, has always been to create one new man, one new body 
in which Jews and Gentiles share equally, fellow members, fellow partakers, fellow heirs, fellow citizens, complete union, fully equal, fully one. And so um, this sounds real good until it starts to work into the details. So if that's really the case, that means that Peter can eat pork with the Gentiles, and now when you have the sign up for the fellowship lunch after church, that the Gentiles can feel free to bring their pork to the church barbecue for Sunday lunch. How do you think that's going to go? You see, it all, gets, it, it all sounds real good until it starts to work its way down. Imagine you're a Jew living in Jerusalem, and your name is Solomon, and you've got a Jewish daughter named Abigail. And you've come to believe in the Messiah. And now you're worshiping with these other people that are also there. And there's this uncircumcised Gentile named Stephanus. These are all make-believe, by the way. He too believes in the Messiah. And he's smitten with Abigail. And he comes to you, Solomon, and he wants to marry your Abigail. How's that going to fly? In Christ, there's no Jew or Greek. There's a problem. It was a problem in the church, and Paul's dealing with it. Reminds me of a sermon I listened to last week, PCA Church, First Pres Augusta. Oldest building in South Carolina, built with two slave galleries in the building. And as they've been working through deep-rooted issues of racism and elitism, and you can listen to this message on raceinthechurch.com. What a hero, George Robertson, pastor in that church, he said it got real intense when the first white girl from the church married a black man from that church. It caused a rift, and many left the church. They, they, they went through somewhat of a split. But God is pouring his spirit out in that church, and they're seeing some wonderful things happen. But they had a hard time stomaching the mystery that the manifold, multicolored, colored of, of God sounds real good till it works ways, ways down into the details. So as Paul's living for this, he experiences his own mistreatment. So he's writing, look what he says, and look at the bookends of this passage. In verse 1, he's telling you he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm, I'm there on behalf of you Gentiles. And in verse 13, he's telling them that he's suffering and it's for your glory. So he's saying, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, here's the reality. It was the Jewish opposition to the mission to the Gentiles that led to Paul's incarceration. This is Klein Snodgrass, poor guy. That's one of the hardest names I've come across. <laughs> Here's what he says in his commentary. He says, the only reason why Paul was in prison was he, because he thought Gentiles had the same access to God that Jews did. If he had been content to be a Jewish Christian with a mission to Jews, or if he had been willing to keep Gentiles on a lower plane in a subordinate position, he would have never been in jail. He'd have been all right. Paul was attacked by the Jews, specifically because he was preaching to the Gentiles. And as you read through the book of Acts, and I would just encourage you to read it, 
and read it with the, the eyes of race. Look at the tension, but it's, it's running all throughout the book of Acts. And as they start, people start coming to Christ and they start bringing the message back to Jerusalem in chapter 11 and chapter 15, you've got a Jerusalem council, you've got, you know, the people are, Peter's got to retell his story, Paul's got to retell his story several times throughout the book because this is tough. This is how we're going to swallow this. How's this going to work? And so he's being attacked because he's preaching the gospel to the, and this created a tension both inside and outside the church. So I want you to put your thinking cap on. It's going to get a little heady for a minute, a little bit of history. But I think if you stick with me, you'll, you'll find this to be helpful because it was very helpful to me. So in Acts 18.18, 18, okay, this is where you kind of from Acts 18 to Acts 21, you have mainly about Ephesus of Paul's missionary journey between his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. He's there briefly at the end of his second missionary journey. He comes back a year later and he's in Ephesus for three years okay, total preaching in Ephesus, okay, in his third missionary journey. And so we begin in Acts 18, 18, and we have the story in Ephesus, and we see that he leaves at the end of his second missionary journey, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, and then he returns a year later, he stays for two years, and Paul begins his ministry in Ephesus in the Jewish synagogue, but after a few months, he's expelled from the temple. He usually didn't even make it a few months in the synagogue, at least in Ephesus, he made it a few months. They kick him out, they expel him, and he goes uh, to the uh, Hall of Tyrannus, and uh, we should have a picture for that, there you go. So you imagine that. So in Acts 19, 9, we're even told, there's a little footnote, and some of your Bibles may even have a little number that you can look up, and it gives you some other texts that sometimes tell you a little bit of history here. And according to F.F. F. Bruce's big book on Paul, he basically says the lecture hall was free from the fifth hour to the tenth hour, which meant from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, this is where Paul was church planning. This was his headquarters. This is where he was preaching the gospel. And apparently they were into the siesta. So a lot of people would work in the morning and the, and the, and the hall of Tyrannus would be open in the morning for classes. And then they'd have the siesta. Yet Paul was using that siesta time to preach the gospel. Yet Paul was working with his own hands as he tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. So he must've been working in the morning and working in the evening, but from 11 to four, he's preaching the gospel. Okay. And so in Acts 19, 19, we're starting to see some of the fruit of his gospel in Ephesus. And it says a number of those who had practiced magical, magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, okay? So great things are happening. And people are coming to Christ, but there's great spiritual battles in Ephesus. You've got witchcraft. No wonder you have the emphasis in Ephesians 6 of the full armor of God. And it seems maybe like a piece of cake, but you start, you know, the seven sons of Sceva. Do you remember that story? You know, Paul we know, and, and, and you know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And they, they, the demons attack this guy who's trying to drive out a demon. He's not a Christian. He leaves bloody and naked running out of the house because he gets attacked by these demons. That's in Ephesus, okay? Lots of spiritual warfare. So we have these two references in 1 Corinthians that are little windows into Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Here they are. 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says, what gain, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? 
If the dead are not raised, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, what in the world am I going through all this incredible suffering in Ephesus, which he describes as wild beast in Ephesus. I wouldn't be doing that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 8, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Sounds good till you read the end. And there are many adversaries. Yikes. So what happened? Well, we know that this great prophet occurred when they had this great bonfire and all the people got rid of all their books and it was lots of money that, that these people that were into these books were now losing. Well, in Acts 19.23, we are told there arose no little disturbance. And the upshot of this story is that the president of the guild of the silversmiths in, in Ephesus, his name was Demetrius, he called a meeting of all the fellow craftsmen and he set before them the problem with Paul's message and seeing all the witchcraft books burned, he feared that their business would be in jeopardy. They had a big business of silversmiths with their miniature silver shrines of Artemis. You remember the seventh wonder, one of the seven wonders of the world was this huge temple of Artemis, right? And they had these little silver, little trinkets, okay, little little things, and they, those puppies, they sold like wild cakes. I mean, they went all over. They were tourist trinkets. Everybody had one. They would purchase these little miniature temples, and they would devote them in the temple, and then they could take the temple with them. And wherever they went, they had their little, their little shrine, and they had the temple with them, okay? So no wonder Paul has a lot to say about the temple in Ephesians, okay? The problem was this preacher Paul lecturing in the halls of Tyrannus, a prominent spot in the city, and he was saying that this was all idolatry and that God didn't reside in temples made by human hands. And Demetrius quickly helped all his fellow employees to see that their economic future was in jeopardy and the remedy was to get rid of Paul. So they went to the theater, we should have a picture of the theater, which seated 25,000 people and they all began the cult cry, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they get the whole crowd to rush in there with them and, and all the people start to rush in on this thing and they all start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They laid hold on two of Paul's companions Gaius and Aristarchus and they drag them into the theater and here's where it gets interesting F.F. Bruce the Jews of Ephesus felt very uneasy about this turn of events although they had no part in Paul's activity it was well known they were no believers in Artemis and a pro-Artemis demonstration might develop into an anti-Semitic rampage the more so because Paul himself was so evidently a Jew and a leading member of the Jewish community, Alexander by name, tried to gain the attention of the crowd and disassociate his community from Paul and the other communities. But the crowd recognizing him to be a Jew held him down and for two hours they kept up the cry, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But as you can see from Paul, from F.F. Bruce's insight, the Jews hated Paul all the more because it was alienated them, okay? Because they're now being identified as being against the silver shrines as well. So no wonder Paul at the end of his life in his last epistle, writing to Timothy, who is a pastor where? 
Ephesus. He says, beware of Alexander, the coppersmith. He did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Most scholars believe that's the same Alexander. So Paul was hated by the Jews outside the church in Ephesus, but because they too were suffering because of Paul's message that exposed the idolatry in the community, but it was worse on the inside. And so on the inside, what happened is, is Paul um, is changed by the gospel and he's told, you remember in, in, in the epistle of the Galatians, he says the one thing that we agreed on was to remember the poor in Galatians 2. And he shakes hands with the apostles and they, have, they welcome Paul into the ministry, but let's remember the poor. And the poor, most think, was the people in Jerusalem. And so Paul, in his missionary journey, and he spent years collecting this, there's this great famine and Agabus comes and, and gives a prophecy that there's going to be a great famine in Jerusalem. And so from AD 52 to 57, a considerable amount of Paul's time was devoted to organizing a collection among the Gentile churches for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Okay, so Paul is being falsely accused as he's collecting this, this gathering because they think that he's actually doing this to pad his own ministry. And so Paul has to bring around these traveling companions from these different communities to represent the different churches. And so, I mean, it gets kind of heady and I could give you all the different names, but basically he had some Gentiles that represented the Macedonian churches. That was Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius and perhaps Timothy were delegates from Galatia. Tychicus and Trophimus traveled on behalf of the churches at Asia. So that was basically to protect the pot, to say, this is my ministry. These are the, these are the Gentiles over this fund, okay? And so the... Paul is telling the church in Rome, the reason I haven't gotten to you yet, it says this. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them for the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So Paul was confident that after he delivered this offering that Christ would then bless him and he would be on his way to Rome and Spain. He asked them to help them in this difficult mission and he asked them to pray for him. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus, by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God, praying to God for me. Pray that I might be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the believers there. There was concern that when he brings this big offering to Jerusalem, and he's trying to get there by Pentecost, okay? And so he views this as a symbol of the spiritual fruit produced by the gospel that first was birthed with the Jews, now it's been bearing fruit among the Gentiles. And so he wants to bring this to the Jerusalem church, and yet the Holy Spirit's testifying in every city that there's gonna be trouble in Jerusalem. But Paul, being like Jesus, resolutely set his face to go towards Jerusalem and following the footsteps of Christ. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's bringing this gift and he's driven to get there by Pentecost because Pentecost was 
where the spirit of God was poured out and it was a very visible manifestation that went beyond the Jews to all the people groups and now he wants to come and bring these first fruit offerings of the harvest among the Gentiles. Here is a spiritual harvest, here's a physical blessing to you, gotta get there by Pentecost. Well, what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? This is all kind of leading up to the big point. In Acts 24, we're given a hint of what happened. Acts 24 is where he's testifying before Felix, but he says, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, and then he goes on and says, they ought to be here before me to make the accusation, should they have anything against me. So what happened was, Jews from the dispersion had arrived to observe Pentecost and apparently there were some Jews who came from Ephesus who recognized Paul and they also saw with him Trophimus, who was a Gentile. They found Paul in the temple precincts with him and you remember in the temple precincts you had the inner court and the outer court. The outer court is where the Jews made all the money on the Gentiles, okay? That's where they, you know, hey, we've got this huge exchange rate going. We've got a little place for you. Come, we've got a massive exorbitant thing going. And what did Jesus think of all that? He kicked them all out, right? That's the outer court. That was Gentiles only. You couldn't go to the inner court or you'd be killed. And the Romans even honored that, that, if, that, that was the one law they allowed the Jews to have capital punishment that if any Gentile goes into the inner court, he loses his life. So Paul now is in the inner courts, and they say, oh, he brought Trophimus into the inner court. He never brought Trophimus into the inner court. Paul's gonna lose his life for this. He's laying his life down. He's gonna be killed for this because he's bringing an offering. He's bringing money and love to show these Jews to unite them, and how is it rewarded? Well, the text tells us in Acts what happened. He, he's accused. They dragged Paul out of the inner court into the outer court. They would have killed him. They're pummeling him up, beating him up. But the Roman garrison, which is right over top two flights of stairs from the northwest, quickly sends down a detachment of so soldiers into the riot. They haul Paul up over their shoulders and drag him up, up the stairs to, to save his life. And then they imprison him. And for two years, they sit on the message. Then it goes from Festus or Felix to Festus to ultimately appeals to Rome. He finally gets to go to Rome. And how does he finally get to Rome? He finally gets there and he is not preaching the gospel openly. He's chained to a guard. And he's telling these people in Ephesus, you need to be united. You need to be one. You need to care about each other. You need to love each other. There isn't anybody that's more equal than, than another. You need to be one church. And I'm doing this for you, and I'm laying my life down for you. I'm suffering. It's for your glory. That's what Paul's saying. That's why I think this is relevant to us. We have to identify with everybody. And so if there's a swastika sticking up for the church, that's our church. We're one in Christ. And we can't say, well, that's, that's them, that ain't me. It is us. Paul gave his life for this. He cared so much to get to the gospel to the unreached people groups, but he also cared that they were unified in the process because he knew that the unity 
would declare what? That the Father has sent the Son when we show that we love one another. And you can bet there's going to be incredible spiritual battle when we deal with issues of unity. It's going to be rough going. I mean, Paul says he fought wild beasts at Ephesus. I remember Steve Sinney was telling me years ago when they were traveling that one of the pastors had shared with them that the deacons took him out back and they beat him up because what was he? he was ministering to black people in his church and his deacons were racist and gave him a beating in the back of the church. These things happen, crazy. And so we have to stand with our brothers and sisters and live out this unity as Paul did. Because Paul is following the pattern of Christ, willing to lay down his life. Let us do the same. Let's pray. Father, open wide our hearts. Bless your church. Lord, all the local churches, may we live as one. And may we not be ashamed of the gospel and ashamed to stand with our brothers and sisters. Forgive us, Lord, for our sins of omission, where we've been quiet. And pray that, Lord, you would um, really work a deep-rooted reconciliation in the churches that would bring glory to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond and sing in Jesus with thy church abide.